Hello, and welcome back to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about each week what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics, hopefully providing a little bit on U.S. politics and a policy angle on these different issues. I'm excited this week to welcome Robin Brooks. He is the Chief Economist here at the Institute of International Finance. I'm going to talk to him about the global economic outlook. Robin is my first, second-time guest. Does that make any sense? Probably not, but I consider that to be, I think in economic jargon, it is the derivative of the derivative or the second-order derivative, but I think that's just a fancy way of saying thanks for being a second-time guest, Robin. I'm now, uh, since I'm a nerd, I'm a little bit uh, distracted by whether this is the second derivative. I will come back to you later in the program on that. (laughs) Thank you very much. All right. So let's first start with the big picture, which is going to be about global economic growth in 2023. Over the holidays, the managing director of the IMF, Kristalina Georgieva, predicted that about one-third of the world will be in recession in 2023, which is a downgrade clearly from their forecasts back in October. Just this week, the World Bank essentially said that they are thinking 2023 from a global perspective will be one of the third worst years in the last 30 years, putting it up there with the global financial crisis of 2009 and the 2020 COVID crisis. Okay, so that's not exactly glorious thinking, Robin. So how are you seeing it from a global perspective? All right, Clay, that's a great question. And it's super topical. You're right. So we've been quite a bit more bearish than consensus. And then both of these institutions, the World Bank and the IMF for quite some time. So I would describe the downward revisions that both the IMF and the World Bank have made recently as a catching up to a view that we've held for quite some time. Let me outline briefly our view and then put it in historical perspective. So we put together forecasts for about 40 countries. We have databases that some members follow assiduously. And when you aggregate up to a global level, the growth forecast that we have for next year, then it is 1.7%. Now, one thing that we do, and I should note that this 1.7% is quite a bit below what the IMF forecasts for next year and also what the World Bank uh, forecasts. So we are more bearish. We have been more bearish for some time. Now, when you look at this kind of number, it is important to control for what nerds like me call the statistical carryover. So that's basically like a drift term that comes from the previous year, and it kind of contaminates this 1.7. So this drift or the statistical carryover is worth 0.4% in 2023. So true growth, okay, so that is the 1.7 minus 0.4 is really around 1.3. So Let me give you some historical perspective on that 1.3. In 2009, so the year of the global financial crisis, uh, let's put aside COVID and 2020 because it was um, completely crazy. Uh, So let's focus on 2009. Growth in 2009 globally was 0.6%. So that sounds worse, but the statistical carryover that year was minus 0.7%. Why? 
It was negative because the recession started already in 2008. And so there was negative drift into 2009. And so when you subtract negative 0.7 from plus 0.6, you end up with 1.3, which happens to be the same number as the growth forecast for true growth that we have for next year. In other words, our forecast at a global level is as weak as growth during the global financial crisis, during the Great Recession. That is a very weak global growth scenario. That's... uh... Well, not encouraging. Um, so I, I do want to break it down a little bit. Obviously, it's, you know, global growth is kind of a, a strange concept because we all know that countries have their own growth rates and what's going on. So I'm gonna, I want to break it down by different kind of big jurisdictions. I'm going to start, you know, usually I would start in the United States. I'm going to start in Europe this time. And the reason is, is because I think if on the, you, you mentioned that you're a little more pessimistic than the IMF and the World Bank. But if, you're, if there was one area where it looks to me like you're a little more of an outlier from them is in Europe. And in that, you had suggested Europe would have a fairly significant recession in 2023. Others, including the IMF World Bank, are a little more at a stable level or a flat growth, maybe even somewhat positive. So at first, I guess, would be to walk me through your analysis, but then also Uh, Does your analysis change in that at least, I assume that part of it was because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the pressure that puts us on energy prices and energy imports into into Europe, Western Europe, the milder winter that at least we are currently experiencing in Western Europe, does that make it a little bit better? And so maybe it won't be as bad a year as you were originally predicting. So this is a topic that I can talk about for about three hours. So prepare for a long answer to this question. So um, we had forecast recession already in 2022, so last year. And that recession in Europe clearly did not happen. Growth last year is, is looking to be quite strong. Countries that we thought were going to go into recession, like Germany, did not go into recession. So the European economy is turning out to be a lot more resilient than we had thought. Our current forecast is for Eurozone growth to be minus 1% in 2023. The statistical carryover for the Eurozone is plus 0.4 roughly. So that's a pretty negative forecast. And Clay, you're totally right that the consensus and the IMF and the World Bank Basically, you can cluster them all around the low zeros, so 0.4 to zero, I would say. So everyone has a forecast that either is flatlining or very marginally positive. So our forecast, as you say, is quite a bit more negative. Now, why has growth been more resilient than we'd forecast? And why am I digging in my heels on our recession forecast, other than just being stubborn and having some German gene material, which is making me stubborn. There are two reasons. First of all, there are some luck factors that caused, uh, in particular, Germany to hold up a lot better than we thought, which we think will fade. So the first is that German auto manufacturing had a bounce in 2022. And that was basically a temporary 
catch up from what previously was very, very weak activity that that goes back all the way to 2019. And so we think that there was a temporary lift, which frankly has nothing to do with Russia and helped German activity, which depends to a very significant degree on auto manufacturing, as, as everybody knows. The other thing that happened in 2022 is that supply bottlenecks um, around chips and IT-related products eased very significantly. And so that helped German manufacturing also. Again, German manufacturing has a lot of exposure to IT chips, heavy components, and so forth. And so when you look at German industrial production, basically it got a very significant lift from chip-heavy industry and from autos. So when you look at industrial production, which I'm going to use here as sort of a, a quick and dirty proxy for what's going on with growth, then industrial production over the past year has roughly been flat. Growth has been zero. Okay. The way that that breaks down is energy intensive sectors are basically down 5%. And that has been offset on the upside by plus 5% in autos and in chip heavy manufacturing. And so we think that these temporary good luck factors were enough to offset the energy drag to Germany's economy, which is significant. Now, we think that those good luck factors will wane, and so therefore we're sticking to our recession forecast. We also think that while inflation is certainly high in the Eurozone, we would prefer for the ECB to kind of take a back seat and not tighten as aggressively as it is because financial conditions in the Eurozone are quite tight, and so that will weigh on Eurozone growth as well. So long story short, the reason that our forecast was too negative last year is because there were some good luck factors. There is genuine resilience in the German economy, but we think as some of those good luck factors start to fade, we're sticking with our recession forecast. There is a lot of debate in the economics profession on the substitutability. So for example, Putin turned off gas exports to Germany. Um, would German manufacturing and German industry be able to substitute away from Russian gas and Russian energy more generally? And the verdict on that is that it has substituted some. But if you look at energy intensive sectors, like, for example, chemicals and pharmaceuticals, uh, production in those sectors is down 15%, 1.5. It's basically as big production cuts as during COVID, right? So this is a massive shock that, of course, there was some substitution on the energy inputs, but basically there were also huge shutdowns. Clay, the, the big question, I think, uh, looking a little bit beyond 2023 is what all this means for the medium term, Germany is a manufacturing hub. A lot of the manufacturing that happened was predicated on cheap energy. Of course, Germany is substituting away from Russian energy to, for example, LNG. But the cost, the price of that energy now is much, much higher. And so uh, the profitability and therefore the investment climate and the appeal of Germany as a location for manufacturing I think over the medium term is has taken a real hit. Thanks, Robin. That is very helpful. Let me. I, I, I want to switch to the United States 
When I did interview you the first time, it was right before actually the Fed did its first uh, interest rate increase, uh, so March of uh, 2022. Uh, Since then, of course, they've it's been the steepest amount of increases uh, since uh, going back all the way to 1982 in terms of how fast the Fed has increased rates. So the U.S. economy is is in a better position, I think, than the European economy that you just went through. But there's a discussion here, of course, in the United States about, you know, and we just this uh, just this week have seen better inflationary data coming out of the United States. It's still not perfect or great, but it's better. And so the Fed has a meeting at the end of this month, January. I think most people would say they, they will continue to see Fed increases. But then there's the question mark of when will they stop? When will they pivot to let's stop, reflect how much has the monetary policy tightening over the last year really affected inflation and so forth? Or will they continue to go a little further because they're not sure and they want to make sure that they really have conquered inflation? So how do you see a little bit the U.S. economic growth, but also a little bit kind of how you see the Fed reacting? So you're, you're totally right, actually. We, the last time we spoke was in March. And of course, at the time, we got from the Fed a very demure 25 basis point hike. And of course, none of us really had any idea of the mammoth heightening cycle that was about to come. So that 25 basis point hike was the first hike in what last year ended up being 425 basis points in hikes. So we had a 25 basis point hike in March. Then we had 50 basis points in May. And then I think the big shocker uh, was when the Fed accelerated tightening to 75 basis points per meeting starting in June. And we then in quick succession had four 75 basis point hikes from the Fed in June, July, September, and November. That's never happened before. Totally crazy. Never in a million years would I have expected that. And luckily, Clay, when you and I did the first current account podcast, you didn't ask me the likelihood of four 75 basis point hikes in quick succession. I would have obviously looked like a fool because I would have said, that will never happen. So where are we now? We are uh, at a Fed funds target rate of around 4.375. The market is pricing another two hikes roughly from here, two hikes and change. So roughly the terminal rate, the end point is around five. But importantly, the, the market is pricing pretty aggressive cuts in the second half of this year and then a lot more cuts uh, next year. And so basically, the market is pricing kind of a policy mistake from the Fed. The market is pricing the fact that the Fed will have to reverse a lot of this tightening and that basically it's over-tightened. And that is a reflection of the market's view that the U.S. is going into recession and that a lot of the inflation push that we had last year was transitory and that inflation is in fact reverting back down to more normal levels. So let me go through the inflation picture, the recession picture in turn, and then tell you where we end up. We were warning pretty aggressively from the middle of last year that inflation was slowing significantly in the United States. Together with the colleague Jack Pingle, we've done detailed work 
which caught a lot of attention that inflation in the United States was slowing significantly. And the way that we measured that was we looked at the dispersion of inflation within the CPI, and that dispersion was going down. So, you know, at the time, the narrative in the United States was very much that inflation was running out of control. Well, that was not at all what our analysis showed as early as June last year. And so we started banging the drum that the Fed was over-tightening, that these 75 basis point hikes that happened were too aggressive, and the Fed needed to slow and to pivot. The Fed did eventually do that. It didn't, in our view, do, do it soon enough. And so I am in the camp that the Fed over-tightened and maybe elevated the risk, perhaps, of recession in the United States a little bit too much. We have a forecast of recession by the end of this year, 2023, of 2.8% uh, year over year in Q4 for core PCE. So I would say that is largely a forecast that recession was transitory. Okay, after being at 6% uh, and higher, obviously on core and headline, if we get back into the twos on core PC inflation, I would say team transitory can declare victory. And I think the stage is then set also for rate cuts uh, from the Fed. On GDP growth, we do not forecast recession. I am amazed how much focus there is on recession in the United States. The forecast that we have is for 1% annual average growth this year. That is a weak pace of growth. It basically means quarterly growth of 0.25% every quarter. That's a fraction of a hair above zero, admittedly. But we think the United States has a lot of momentum. And so we think that'll carry the U.S. through without an actual recession. So long story short, in terms of Fed policy, there's one thing that matters and one thing only, it is inflation. If we get core PCE prints like yesterday's and the two before that, they have been incredibly benign. And then I think we will get maybe one hike more. Maybe we will get two hikes more. So Clay, you mentioned the FOMC meeting at the end of this month and uh, on the 1st of February. I think we'll definitely get a 25 basis point hike on the 1st of February. And then I think whether we get another 25 basis point hike after that will hang in the balance. But I think the terminal rate here for sure is going to be 4.9, maybe below. And then I think the Fed, unlike what the market is pricing, is going to hold at that level for a while. It will not start to cut immediately. No, thank you, Robert. I, I think I would disagree with you slightly on that team transitory is the champ, mainly because I think that you would have to expand the definition of transitory pretty dramatically in order to make that work. But I totally get your point. So let me change to the other big region, which and, and where we saw a, a lot of uncertainty, which is China. I know that we were early on forecasting in 2022 that China would not have the economic growth that they expected to have. I think we were pretty correct on that. Now, we've seen over the holidays, they ended the zero COVID policy. In some respects, and I don't mean to make light of this, they, it has not unleashed consumer demand. Instead, it's unleashed COVID on the, to the Chinese people, and so, which has been, I'm sure, extremely difficult. But how do you see the situation in China? I mean, I was reading different reports on this over the last few weeks. It does seem like there's wide dispersion of beliefs of what's going to happen in China from an economic perspective this year. And I'm sure a lot of it is going to be dependent on what exactly 
the end of COVID zero really means. But anyway, do you have any thoughts on China? Great question. And as you know, Clay, we have a great China economist, Gene Ma, who gives us good insight on China and who is sought after in our membership base in terms of his views. Now, Gene forecasts growth for China this year of 4.6%. I would call that basically a touch weaker than consensus. Consensus is around 5 I would say that the uncertainty around China is massive at the moment. And let me paint a couple of scenarios for you. But the underlying issue is that we don't really know very well what is going on. So we, for example, don't really know how many people are sick. We don't know the true mortality rate. We therefore don't know the fear factor in China's population. So these things are very difficult to assess. And of course, zero COVID policy for many years has instilled in um, Joe Schmo in China a real fear of this virus. So you can end zero COVID, but you can't end the fear from one day to the next. And so it's perfectly possible that Chinese consumption, retail behavior, spending patterns will remain very depressed, even though China nominally ends its zero COVID policy. So we'll have to see how all of that shakes out. I would say that there are two extreme polar opposite scenarios. One is that Omicron basically rages through China. And within, say, the next four to six weeks, China has reached essentially herd immunity through infection. That will obviously come with excess mortality, but basically then China can go back to business as usual. There is a lot of focus in the markets on whether, for example, imports into China at high frequency of crude oil, of other commodities are starting to rise. As you can imagine, high frequency data on this are very, very noisy. We, I would say, on balance, are not yet seeing a big uptick. Some indicators point to an uptick, but others haven't really moved yet. So I think the evidence on on all of that is all over the place. The the polar opposite downside case, and I'd I'd love your views, Clay, on, on where you see things shaking out, is that the fear factor as part of these infections uh, becomes large. You could, for example, have a new COVID variant, Omicron variant, which is more lethal. And therefore, you have much more uncertainty around the outbreak in China. Um, And bear in mind that one of the catalysts, not the only catalyst, but one of the catalysts for the end of zero COVID were unprecedented street demonstrations across China in, in many of its cities. So it's conceivable that if the situation deteriorates, we go back to those demonstrations because people have just had enough. So I would say that's the downside scenario where political, economic, macro uncertainty goes up a lot. Um, And in that case, I think you'll see a growth outcome, which will be a lot weaker than the 4.6 that we, we currently have written down. Overall, I think more than usual, Tracking high-frequency non-China data is absolutely critical. Um, At the moment, those data are tracking, I would say, at a pace of around 4.2% annual growth. So we're tracking slightly below our 4.6% forecast. No, thank you. And you make a good point, Robin, which is that sometimes, you know, we 
do get caught up in the data statistics and and you know what central banks are up to, then you forget you know a lot of this could just fall because of politics. And so let me use that as a, a switching point to kind of the broader emerging markets picture. And I think you've been very clear on this, um, which is it's not a monolith. So obviously there are predictions out there of a emerging markets debt crisis, or maybe it should be a frontier market debt crisis. But there are some emerging markets that are doing quite well. Now, one country that's actually done probably a little bit better has been, you know, Brazil. And but, you know, over the last week, we've seen some pretty dramatic political events in Brazil. Whether that affects their economy or not is uh, to be seen. So I guess maybe I could put it to you this way in terms of emerging markets. What do you see as maybe some of the biggest uh, upside surprises and unfortunately, what do you see as maybe some downside surprises? So first of all, I should say that I am as bullish on emerging markets, excluding China, because China is so different. Uh, I'm as bullish on emerging markets as I have been in a very long time, and certainly the most bullish on emerging markets that I have been in my time here at the IIF. Uh, I've been here six years. Why? As you said, Clay, a really important part of emerging markets is that they are not a monolith. They, in fact, are not a monolith at all. The single biggest distinguishing factor in emerging markets is that there are many, many big commodity exporters versus many, many big commodity importers. So you mentioned one of the key commodity exporters, that's Brazil. Latin America is full of big commodity exporters, Colombia. Argentina, all of these export agricultural products, they export energy in various forms. And so when commodity prices go up, they benefit. Emerging markets also have big commodity importers. India is one that often gets mentioned. China is obviously one, um, but we're, we're kind of setting that apart. And then Turkey is another big commodity importer. Overall, the reason that I'm pretty bullish on emerging markets is because in the grand scheme of things, if you look, for example, at the GSCI commodity price index, it's very elevated. Of course, oil prices have fallen back from the highs immediately after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But in the grand scheme of things, commodity prices, when you factor in all the other, the metals, the agricultural products and so forth, they're very elevated. So that is really good news for emerging markets for the commodity exporting complex and emerging markets, and for Latin America in particular. So recently, I have been invited to speak at a lot of LATAM-focused uh, events. In part, that's because we're quite bullish on Latin America. We have a positive message. Um, and we think that is going to be a growth center for emerging markets. That's really important because basically, Latin America has been through something of a lost decade. Brazil hasn't really grown. GDP has essentially been flat for the last 10 years since 2014. And so we think that this commodity price shock, which is positive to the region, is going to be really, really good news for Brazil and the rest of Latin America. We have seen flows, which are always a good reflection of what people are doing as opposed to what I'm saying Flows are very heavy towards Latin America in particular. Mexico seems to be a big darling among the high-frequency flows that we track, whereas the skepticism in markets towards Eastern Europe and Turkey 
at the moment is pretty elevated. So that's where I think sentiment is the most bearish. So you asked about kind of a differentiation between the most positive and the most challenging. And I think the most positive is Latin America with a lot of focus there. And then the most negative is Eastern Europe and, uh, and Turkey and some countries in North Africa. Excellent. Well, Robin, thank you very much. We've covered a lot in a very short period of time. And I do appreciate you putting that forward. And I, I was actually, it was nice to end on a bullish note or an optimistic note. So thank you again for joining me, Robin. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back for the second time. So now it's time for my uh, three, two, one. These are the three main takeaways, two things I'm looking forward to, and then a one sports effect. So the three things I take away from the conversation with Robin are first is that uh, the global economy is going to probably have a difficult year in 2023. The IIF is actually probably a little bit more negative, And we've heard just over recently how negative some of the big international organizations are. Next, in particular, we're negative on Europe. You heard Robin. He's sticking to his assumptions and his observations that Europe is still has a lot of problems this year. And while others are a little more optimistic, he's pretty pessimistic. And finally, and maybe on the optimistic note, our chief economist at the IF is actually quite bullish on many emerging markets. He just differentiates, but he overall is bullish. And that was an interesting point of view. The two things that I'm looking forward to are first, and not surprisingly, is the Federal Reserve's meeting in a few weeks uh, to find out where they're going with interest rates. And the reason why it's interesting is because inflationary expectations have started to come back down. And it seems like, has the Fed gotten on top of this enough that they can actually make a pivot to stopping their interest rate increases? We'll get our first telltale sign in the end of January, early February meeting. The second is the, uh, to looking forward to is how does China deal with this kind of massive increase in their citizenry getting COVID and whether or not they can put their economy back on track after period of dealing with COVID as many other countries around the world have done. My one sports fact this week is to talk about uh, alpine skiing. And it's about a, a woman from the United States named Michaela Schifrin. For those that don't follow alpine skiing, the races are done through the World Cup series, and they're done throughout the world. Michaela Schifrin has been the most successful person in the world, except for one, which is another American named Lindsey Vaughn, who is retired from ski racing. The two of them have had 82 World Cup victories, which it turns out is 20 more than anybody else has ever had in the history of World Cup skiing. Ms. Schifrin has already won. I believe, eight races this year. So there's a good chance that she can break the record in the remainder of this year, which usually goes through March. Next up, the all-time leader, which is a man, Ingemar Stenmark, who is a Swedish alpine skier who retired many years ago, who had 86 victories. Schifrin is only 27 years old. And so there is a very good chance that she'll break Stenmark's record. I think the two things I wanted to point out about this record are first, skiing, which I am not an expert on. It's interesting that 
Lindsey Vaughn was an expert on the downhill racing and its kind of smaller counterpart, the Super G racing. That's where she won almost all of her races, although she did win races in the other disciplines. Michaela Schifrin is an expert on slalom and giant slalom, although she has won races in downhill and Super G as well. It is interesting that these two individuals who took on skiing in very different ways have become all-time winners in different aspects of the sport. The second interesting thing is over the last year, we have started to see the retirement of what I would call the GOATs, the greatest of all time, or we're getting to the end of how much time they have left doing what they do. In Ms. Schifrin's case, we may be seeing actually the rise of potentially the GOAT. And that I think is a very interesting thing. As I mentioned, she's only 27 and she could have a long way to go. That's going to wrap it up for this episode of Current Account. I do want to thank my colleague Robin Brooks for his insights. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener. We can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. Make sure you turn in next Monday for our next episode. And our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and goodbye.